0: I'm always looking to improve my podcast, and I've been advised by many, my monotone intros just aren't fitting the bill. So I'm going to do a little bit of a market research here, and I'm going to try to amplify my introduction for a person who needs amplification. So give me some feedback. Do you like monotone mark, or do you like amplified mark? Here comes amplified mark. Welcome to Confronting the Madness. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Insel, an American psychiatrist and neuroscientist. Without question, Tom is one of the most influential minds as it comes to mental health today in the world. Tom is currently a co-founder and advisor to MindStrong, a company transforming mental health through innovations in virtual care data measurement, and data science. Tom has recently also been named the mental health czar for the state of California by its governor, Gavin Newsom. From 2002 through 2015, Dr. Insel served as the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, advising people like President Barack Obama on mental health policy. The NIMH is the largest research organization in the world specializing in mental illness and has a budget of $1.5 billion, with a B, annually. After Tom left the NIMH, he moved into the private sector. And from 2015 through 2017, he led the mental health team at Google Life Sciences, now known as Verily. And now I'm going to go back to monotone. Authentic, Mark. Humble. Humble honest, reflective, entrepreneurial, and aspirational are the words that jump out at me after talking with Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And now I bring to you Dr. Thomas Insel. Dr. Tom Insel, uh, welcome to Confronting the Madness. It's an honor and privilege for me to speak with you today. Uh, I think you are, without question, one of the most influential minds as it it comes to mental health in the world today, and and for the past uh, generation, Um, you you could say you're a czar. um, And actually, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom had recently announced you. I don't think maybe he said czar, maybe it was media, and I was thinking. I don't even I don't even know what a czar is, so I had to look it up before this. And so you're the emperor of mental health in California right now. So 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 thank you so much for joining us. And 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 just um, you know we have a broad range of, of listeners. And for those that might not know, know who you are, um, maybe just talk a little bit about your your life's work um, in the field of be- behavioral health, mental health, however you want to characterize it um and where you're at right now in your career sure
1: mark hey first it's a delight to be here and uh thanks for including me i'm really supportive of what you're trying to do there's such an important need here to talk about mental health issues uh and make sure people have a common language and a understanding of what the biggest issues are uh thanks for the introduction. I'm not really a Czar per se, but uh, and we have an emperor uh of of health in California, Secretary of Health and Human Services, who's spectacular, but I do try to help um as an advisor when called upon and and California right now is a very interesting place to look at the The governors just committed over four billion dollars to youth mental health and it's wow. the biggest biggest commitment uh really ever for financially uh, for that area. Uh, How we use it and uh, what comes out of that is gonna be so fascinating to follow Mm -hmm. over the next uh, two or three years. So there's a lot going on as we come out of COVID. Um, This is becoming a big topic and there's uh, a lot to uh, keep up with. So yeah, uh, my background, just very quickly, I trained in psychiatry. And uh, so I went to medical school, did a residency in psychiatry had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards, uh, just kind of by accident ended up at the national institutes of health in Bethesda, Maryland, um, and learned about research in mental health. Uh, and again, kind of just opportunistically got pulled into, um, the first study, uh, giving, um, clomipramine, a, an SSRI, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to people with OCD. That was in 1980, 1979. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at least to for adults there was a study going on in children that Judy Rapaport was running at the NIH so i added the adult uh, piece to it and that kind of got me started i really got the science bug the research bug from that as a clinical researcher i did that for about 4 years and then said um Well, this is interesting and um, it's kind of in some ways gratifying, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like great science Mm -hmm. because we didn't have the tools in the early 1980s that we have now. So I dropped out, retooled, started a new career in neuroscience and spent the next 20 years uh, in a laboratory um, trying to use the tools of chemical neuroanatomy uh, for mapping social uh, neuroscience pathways. So Mm. how does the brain um, mediate affiliation, monogamy, uh, parental care? Um, We did a lot of, my lab did a lot of the seminal work on oxytocin and vasopressin and
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, how those receptors work, how they're regulated. Um, We ended up creating a whole range of transgenic animals to really try to nail down what the specific role for those peptides were in the brain and it was a fun fun career uh until about 2002 so after <laughs> about two decades doing that i got pulled back into um the world of psychiatry uh, mm-hmm. which i had completely lost track of i mean mm-hmm. um you know through those two decades i don't think there was anybody i interacted with who knew that i was a psychiatrist wow um what kind pu- of talk- what
0: what pulled you yeah. back who pulled I got back? a
1: job uh, as the director of the a- NIMH.
0: Yeah, but how How and why and uh, who? I,
1: it was the weird thing. I mean, it was a very sought after job, but mm-hmm. not by me. I right, yeah. Even, I wouldn't have even known about it. NIMH was funding some of my work, but most of my funding came from the NSF in, this, in the States, the National right. Science Foundation, which does the kind of work, the social neuroscience work that I was doing. It wasn't clinical. It wasn't even preclinical in some cases. But the, uh, the, we had, there was a new NIH director, um, a brilliant guy who was a radiologist, and uh, he wanted someone to run the NIMH who was a neuroscientist, not someone who was a clinical scientist. I see. And I think that was a reflection on how he, he saw the field. I think right. he was very skeptical about um, a lot of the, uh, the quality of the science coming out of the clinical research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think, you know, he put together a search committee that reflected that they had something like eight candidates, all of whom would have been appropriate directors. Mm-hmm. And then I got, my name got thrown into that mix in a weird way. Cause I had like no, I, I was like completely unknown right. at that point, but I ended up uh, getting the offer and, um, and I was super excited about it because I was at a point after 20 years in neuroscience where I thought, gosh, some of this ought to be relevant to the needs of people with mental illness. And so um, I took it and, and I jumped in and uh, it was uh, just a fantastic experience to be Mm. running um, an institute. It had an intramural program where we had research going on in Bethesda with about a thousand scientists there. And then we had, the whole extramural program made up of universities and academic medical centers around the world, actually. Um, and it was a chance to sort of begin to shape at least the research agenda for right. psychiatry. So who wouldn't want to do that? What a great opportunity.
0: And, and tell me, um, like, what kind of budget were you working with at the NIMH?
1: Uh, yeah, I think on average, you know, I was there from 2002 to 2015 when I came, it was probably about $1.3 billion a year. By the time I left, it was about 1.5 maybe. And then we had some additional money because we started the Brain um, Initiative with uh, President Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, And that added some dollars. And there were a few other things coming in. But It was in the, you know, between one and two billion.
0: Yeah, so it was it was was a hell of a lot of money. Can I can I just step back before you go further? Um, When you are talking about the the nineties and your development, which led to uh, a class the SSRIs. um, So, were you one of the? Would would you say you are one of the, the pioneering researchers that helped develop that class of antidepressant? As it's seen today,
1: no, not at all. I really had dropped out of the field by eighty three um, and when I came back twenty years later i which is the period in which all that happened, the mm-hmm. kind of uh second generation antipsychotics and antidepressants all happened when I was gone. I was like Rip Van Winkle, you know right, like right, I was right. you know, asleep for twenty years, doing something completely different and um but mark what was interesting was when i came back and this was very telling in the early 2000s uh like rip van winkle uh you know i sort of was looking around saying wow you know all the same people mm-hmm. <laughs> doing all the same things mm. and all the same problems the only thing there were a lot of there were a lot more drugs right. a lot more yeah you know uh antidepressants and antipsychotics and anxiolytics uh, drugs i had never heard of and you know there were but the reality was um, on the one hand, my colleagues were doing a bit of a victory dance they were mm-hmm. talking about all this progress and how much had how much success they had enjoyed and yet um, in terms of the public health status right, there were more people unemployed with serious mental illness mm-hmm. there was a much higher rate of suicide there was um, there was probably more disability uh and fewer signs of success in a public health sense. Right. And there was even as I came into this or came back into this in two thousand three, two thousand two, on the one hand, I kept hearing this is the golden era, like we have just, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was victory laps here in high fives. Yeah. And on the other hand, I couldn't see the evidence for that enthusiasm. Meanwhile, I was coming out of a world in which truly it had been the golden era. The the 80s and 90s for neuroscience had been like the 20s for physics. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had essentially, uh, we had recreated how to think about the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was just a revolution in neuroscience during that time that uh, and we had seen the field grow by probably tenfold uh, in so many ways. I mean, it had become, through most of the 90s, uh, I would say it was probably the most popular and most important area in all of science. It was mm. a phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Neuroscience and genomics, those two right. areas really, yeah. really blew up in the 90s. And uh, so it was kind of a shock to come back and to say, wait a minute, like, the only thing that's really changed here is there's a lot more confidence and, but and a lot more sense of victory, but I don't see the right. clinical side yeah. having, you know, and clearly, to be fair, it was a kind of golden era for the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. They had just done unbelievably well
2: mm-hmm. through
1: the 90s and even into the early 2000s, um, with every major company raking in huge profits from the sale of antidepressants and antipsychotics. And there were a lot more people getting a lot more medication than when I was around in the 1980s or 1970s but the crazy thing about that was it didn't it didn't show up as a golden era for patients or mm-hmm. as a, as mm-hmm. a it's it's as if uh those victory laps that were being enjoyed by academic psychiatrists uh just were completely out of touch with the real world of care where if anything things were worse than they had been in the early 1980s yeah and
0: and do you think and maybe we can just follow this thread from from your 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 2002 through 2015 and then onwards because you know during the um the the pharmaceutical revolution in mental health do you think that there was in hindsight adequate clinical trials completed to showcase efficacy? Because, you know, we see now that, you know, 30 to 40% of people when it comes to SSRIs um, find them ineffective and the side effect profile. Like if if we were to do a a clinical trial to get a pass through the FDA today, is that, do you think that would meet the criteria of today's age?
1: It might, because the FDA is mostly looking at short term efficacy and safety. Mm -hmm. And um, it just seems to be the case that these drugs, you should use these drugs while they still work because they, you know, almost every one of these looks better when it's first released than it does uh, 10 years later. Um, And there's an enormous number. And I'm not, you know, I'm not interested really in uh, being cynical Mm -hmm. about the pharmaceutical industry, I think they do what they do really well. They're very rigorous and very careful in, in, uh, trial design, sometimes in trial execution. Um, uh, I, I think the problem has been that there've been a couple issues there. One is that somehow we conflated being on medication with being in treatment. Right. Um, and to be clear, we don't do that in diabetes. We don't do that in heart disease. Right. We kind of understand that treatment means medicine, but it means a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, we I don't know how, but we lost sight of that in right mental health care. and you know, it, and particularly now that depression, anxiety is largely in primary care. It's mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. I want to so. I want to talk about that too because really, what it is is dampening a symptom as opposed to getting to the the underlying cause through, uh, would you agree with that assessment of what the SSRIs, for example, are effective at doing, or how would you well, think about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know how to think. We don't know what the cause is often, so right. it's hard yeah. to know yeah. what yeah. doing, but, but I would agree with you, Mark, that the, and that's the second issue here, is that efficacy meant reducing symptoms at four weeks mm-hmm. or maybe mm-hmm. six and eight weeks, and that's important but it's insufficient so Mm -hmm. the question really is can someone go back to school can they go back to work can they begin to function and um we haven't had enough of a concern about overall functional goals what i would call recovery right um that's not been part of the playbook and uh for particularly psychotic illnesses uh, that is Going to be critical, um, so I think efficacy needs to be redefined mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. a bit, and 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 it may not be that medication is well. It's part of the answer. It's certainly not the entire answer. So we may be asking way too much of our SSRIs or any other medications um, if we think that just by taking a pill you're going to be able to recover.
0: Do do you think we have an opportunity uh, now in the in the psychedelic phase of you know mental health treatment to redefine what success looks like in terms of as you say recovery or because it's stuck in a medical model um, it's going to be contained to that um, same. Efficacy so when standard.
1: you say psychedelic phase, what are you what are you thinking?
0: Well, what I'm thinking, like let's say for example, Compass Pathways um, as a treatment protocol, whereby they do um, two sessions with an individual, um, they then integrate it with psychotherapy, and then what they're measuring is not on the scale of you know, are you happier? Are you more satisfied? Integrating functional goals in terms of over six months, twelve months, how has your um life been improved as you're talking about with respect to functionality?
1: Yeah. So it full disclosure, I'm an investor and advisor to Compass. So mm-hmm. yes. I want to make yes. sure that my <laughs> I, I <use> my, my... <laughs> words are are understood accordingly, but I, I do think the the innovation for them and for others in this psychedelic space has, for me, it has less to do with the pill and more to do with the therapy. Right. It's very interesting that they talk about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel that's part of what we have missed uh, in the previous 30 to 40 years of this field, that. Um, we acted as if the FDA was all that mattered. Mm, mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. medicines were developed uh, to meet the FDA guidelines. The FDA does not regulate psychotherapy. Basically nobody does, but we knew psychotherapy is very effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the opportunity to combine medicine and therapy to create a bundle of treatment that does have more ambitious goals than just, immediate symptom relief um is huge here and it's something we've neglected really we've missed it Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and, and in a paradoxical way the the renaissance of psychedelics is bringing that back or bringing that to the forefront i think that's pretty innovative and pretty exciting that all of a sudden we're talking about drug-assisted psychotherapy instead of just assuming that either you're going to be on medicine or you're going to be in psychotherapy, and that uh, one of those is going to be much better than the other. Why aren't we asking people, or why aren't we offering people an opportunity to have both Mm -hmm. in a way that is really strategic, structured, time-limited, and like with what the uh, folks at Compass are doing, uh, demonstrated to be effective Mm -hmm. with, with those kinds of outcomes that are more than just the short-term relief of symptoms. Right. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah
0: I'm, I'm fascinated by, I had um, the folks from Field Trip on, Ronan Levy, and, and sure. I'd love, I'd love yeah. to have the Compass people on as well to talk more. Um, so I want to get back to the chronology of your career, 2002, but before I do that, I want to ask you um, just a more g- generic question about the mental health profession, and I use that as a broad construct, um, first of all, do you think there's significant misalignment amongst mental health professionals in terms of, uh, treatments? Um, and is there another profession, whether it comes to patients, professionals or the public that, um, is more misaligned or, um, fragmented than mental health because I find that you could talk to 10 psychiatrists, 10 psychologists and 10 patients and they all have very, very different opinions on medication, psychotherapy, psychedelics, and maybe just talk through how you think about that because that's just been my experience. Um, navigating the system and, and talking with policymakers.
1: Yeah. So this is this is really drives uh families bananas mm-hmm. because it's um it's often so difficult to find a therapist or a clinician. Uh even the terms we use are so confusing. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, it depends on how you slice it, but there's somewhere between 600,000 and 800,000 mental health or people in the mental health workforce, okay. right? It's a, it's a huge, huge workforce. Mm-hmm. And just as a reference point, there are about 200,000 primary care docs mm-hmm. and 200,000 dentists. So you've got three to four times that number of people in the mental health workforce, Um in the US. And yet you hear this over and over again, nobody has access mm-hmm. there. You can't find anybody mm-hmm. if you need therapy. Uh, I mentioned before that psychotherapies are can be very effective and uh, can be really a powerful set of interventions. And by that, I mean sort of the modern skill based therapies that people have developed and demonstrated of efficacy and effectiveness. in in uh, rigorous trials. But when you ask out of that 600,000 or 780,000, mm-hmm. whatever na- number mm-hmm. you want to come up with, how many of those people are actually trained to deliver the treatments mm-hmm. that work? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it 80% the way it would be in oncology? Uh, 60% the way it would be in probably any other area of mm-hmm. medicine. The numbers are closer to 0.2%, 0.5%. You've got very, you know, if you ask how many people have delivered DBT at the level that Marsha Linehan would have said, oh yeah, that's DBT. Or even CBT in a way that at least, you know, they're giving homework assignments Mm -hmm. and checking them Uh, or, you know, family-based care for anorexia nervosa, Mm -hmm. the deadliest mental health illness we've got out there, you're going to find handfuls of people who actually have the training to do this. And that, so when you talk about misalignment, for me, uh, what's so striking is we have this massive workforce and what they're doing is often very difficult to define and is rarely accountable. Mm -hmm. That is, no one is really asking the question, is there any scientific basis for this? Is this the best treatment for this problem? Um, what you know, what are people actually getting paid for? Right. It and how do we know that it's working? And so, you now in a way, it tracks back to this comment from before that all this progress, all this funding, all this workforce, and yet when you look at population-based mm-hmm. outcomes, you ask, is the suicide rate going mm-hmm. up or down? Is the disability rate going up or down? For the most part, the numbers are going in the wrong yeah. direction. And, and and I think sorry. that's part yeah. of it is that yeah. we're just not, you know, even though a lot more people are in treatment, they're not getting the treatments that work. Right.
0: And and what's the what what is the root cause for the lack of? consistency and educate, is it a funding issue or is it a historical, you know, issue that we've never really created a system? It's just kind of evolved from uh, the years of insane asylums. And it's, it's just been piecemeal ever since then. And then what's the solution? Because, you know, the more I think about it and everybody always advocates for more funding, more funding, more funding, but, you know, in Canada and the United States are different in some ways, same in others. I, I'm less inclined to believe that money is the answer and, and more inclined to believe that a, a recalibration of the system and a, and a complete fresh start um, would be more beneficial.
1: Yeah, I've re- so I just I have a book coming out on this topic. It's called Healing. Um, our path from mental illness to mental health, mostly focused on the U.S. system, mm-hmm. but it's asking the question. You know, part of it is to say, "Look, we've got a crisis, uh, and this is a this is a mess at many mm-hmm. levels." And you know, it it defines that crisis as issues of quantity and quality. That is, that we don't have capacity, mm-hmm. and this is true in Canada, but it's even more true in the states. We we don't have you know, people end up being stranded in emergency rooms or homeless shelters because we are jails. Mm-hmm. So we, in this country, we mostly incarcerate people with mental illness instead of putting yeah. them into the health system. So there's a, a capacity or quantity problem. There's a quality problem. We're just talking about the workforce. It doesn't have the training and the things that work. There's problems around accountability and the failure to measure. Um, so there's a bunch of reasons why we're in the mess. We're in some of it's historically explained mm-hmm. by just um how we have we haven't invested in this but moreover we haven't taken it seriously right. and what we've ended up doing is taking seriously the consequences so we spend a lot of time on in this country on investing in jails and prisons and homeless shelters and we're very focused on on all the things that happen because we haven't dealt with right, the root right. cause yeah. of mental illness and we're not making, we, we don't ensure that people with these illnesses get treated. The, the irony of that and the real tragedy of that is that we actually have good treatments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're treatments that stand up well to any area of medicine. So what's the solution? Like, how do you fix this? How do you get people into treatment? How do you make sure that people recover? And what the book says is that um, it's not that hard. We actually know what to do. Uh, and we know how to do it. Um, the problem is we haven't cared mm-hmm. enough to do it. We haven't, you know, we've been looking at the consequences, but not the causes. And so, the book is a sort of a call to action for essentially what is a, a, a social movement mm-hmm. to say um, this has become a civil rights issue in the states that people, essentially, with brain disorders, um, are criminalized. They're, you know, we we only treat them when they're in mm-hmm. jail or prison. Mm-hmm. How How awful is that? But it's fixable. And um, for me, the fix is to, um, as I say in the book, to remember that these are, the problem is a medical problem in the sense that it's a brain Mm -hmm. disorder problem, Mm -hmm. but the solutions are not just medical. Yeah. So yeah, medicines are important, but that's just the beginning. The solutions are social, relational, they're environmental, they're political. I talk a lot in the book about the need to uh, to shift us towards a focus on recovery as mm-hmm. a goal. Something I did not appreciate during my years at mm-hmm. NIMH, but I think I've really learned this being in the trenches where it's not just about reducing the hallucinations. It's about what I call the three Ps. Um, the, the first time I heard about this was from a psychiatrist who works on Skid Row in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And I said to him, uh, you know, you talk a lot about recovery. What, what, what the hell right, is that? Right. What do you mean by yeah. recovery? And he said, well, he said, man, it's so easy. It's just the three Ps. And I thought, like, was he, like Prozac, <laughs> Paxil, like, what's the third? What's the third P like prolixin? (laughs) Come on. And he said, he kind of watched me like noodle Mm -hmm. on this. And he said, it's, it's easy, man. It's, it's people place Mm. purpose. Mm -hmm. It's not about reducing symptoms. Mm -hmm. Sure. You have to do that. But if you want to change the system, if you really want to fix this crisis, You've got to deal with people, place, and purpose. You've got to make sure that anyone with a mental illness is connected to somebody who has their back. Right. Could be family, could be friend, could be peers, could be could be the the health mm-hmm. system. Unlikely. It right. yeah. could be. They've got to be in a place that's safe and that supports health, a place where they can um, exercise, a place where they're not exposed to um, to all the toxicity that has brought them there, which is often um, the drug culture and a bunch of other things that are really bring people down. And most of all, um, they got to have something to live for. Um,
0: yeah, Meaning. Yeah.
1: Marsha Linehan used to say to me, when well, she was an advisor for me at NIMH, and we'd always argue, and we always <laughs> argued about everything. And And I would always say to her, um, I just can't believe you're not hospitalizing people when they're suicidal. Mm. How can you take that risk? And she used to say, like, oh, you know, hospitalizing someone when they're suicidal is the worst mm. thing you can do. It tells you, she, she said that, you know, if you want to make sure that people don't kill themselves, you've got to give them something right. to live for. Yeah. You've got to have yeah, a purpose. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think it was Nietzsche who said famously that uh, – S- somebody with a why can live can with it anyhow. anyhow yeah yeah and and it's um it's that that business of that third p of giving people something to live for giving them a mm-hmm. purpose giving them a mission um we don't talk about that that's not part of mental mm-hmm. health care broadly it's not certainly not something the fda looks at when they're uh, reviewing <laughs> a, a new treatment um, for someone with uh, psychotic illness but that's where the book mm. goes. The book really goes towards rethinking the problem as, uh, as understanding the need for recovery, uh, defining the recovery as those three Ps. And then, um, uh, really in trying to ensure that people have, have an opportunity to get each of them and, and 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 by the way, God, we know how to right. do this. Like, we mm-hmm. know how to build social mm-hmm. support. We know how to find places that are healthy. And, and we actually can take someone's lived experience and make that a mission that they can yes. build on to yes, help through others. peer they support
0: can, and other things. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: They can, they can um, take it forward. And so, gosh, there's just – this is not rocket mm-hmm. science. Uh, all of this – is there in front of us and, you know, Mark, tracking back to um, where we were in my own trajectory and my own journey for this, because the book that I wrote is basically the odyssey that I've been on. Um, I think it began to occur to me at NIMH Mm -hmm. where we were spending billions of dollars to develop like better imaging and better Mm -hmm. genomics that that stuff is probably going to be helpful. Uh, but not in my mm-hmm. lifetime. And meanwhile, you know, we had a, we're in the middle of a crisis. Things are getting worse, and we, you know, rather than developing the next generation of medications, mm-hmm. like let's find out how to use the things that we have now, which are pretty right. good, and which people are not yes. getting access to. Sixty percent of people with mental illness are not mm-hmm. in care. Hey, here's an idea. Figure out. How to engage them better, engage earlier, preempt an emergency room mm-hmm. crisis. Um, that's probably going to be more important in the long run to our public health goals than uh, identifying a new molecular target mm-hmm. for uh, for a drug that works through GABA trans- transaminase. I mean, yeah, it's important yeah. and interesting, but uh, as somebody said to me when I was starting on this journey you know what, um, our house is on fire. We don't have time to look at the chemistry of the mm-hmm. paint. Yeah. I,
0: so I read Anne Harrington's book, Mind Fixers, um, and she had quoted you. It, it, are you familiar with the book Mind Fixers? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so the, the quote, which, in and, and I guess, through your evolution, um, from 2002 to through 2015, from what you might call, you know, biological psychiatry. Um, I was also at this place. um, I was a CEO of a a mental health foundation, which is a funder at a, you know, much smaller scale, obviously, but so fascinated into biomarkers and things like repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, new technologies, um, and really the, the biology of mental illness and, I read your quote um, where you said that you spent 15 years at NIMH really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on it, I realized that I succeeded at getting a lot of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think 20 billion, but I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. And I read that, um, quote first of all um thinking that's quite honorable of you to say that, but also looking at the things that our foundation was endeavoring to to do, and you know if you're giving half a million dollars for something, thinking you're going to change the world when you're on and they're giving billions of dollars um and not moving the needle on some of um the most important um outcomes for patients and their families that was a paradigm shift for me as well and so how did how did that evolve for you over your time it, was it just that the the outcomes weren't bearing out or was it just that you also thought the biological aspect of it was interesting in that you know as a major funder you had to look 50 years into the future in order to, um, you know, really benefit with your investments.
1: Yeah, the latter, Mark. I mean, I, I people have interpreted my comments to say that I'm dismissive. Mm-hmm. Of yeah, what, I didn't take it that um, way. What research can do. And it, it's not. I mean, I think... We need that. We need that. We need more mm-hmm. of an investment in the science and we need to understand more about these illnesses. There's no question. I think the, the quote I used to give when I was at NIMH to defend the agency and in, in our strategy was to say, we need to know more before we can do better. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's flat out wrong now. I mean, I, I think we can do a lot better with what mm-hmm. we know now. It is not, it is still the case that we do need Mm -hmm. to know more. And when we know more, we will even do better than we can today. And there are lots of examples of that. We still have about 30% of people with serious, with major depressive disorder who, who don't recover we don't quite know why. Um, But so we need something more for that group of people. I mean, there, there are a bunch of problems that we are not really good at solving, but um, we we should be able with what we know today to make sure that any young person that has a psychotic mm-hmm. episode doesn't have a right. second episode right right and we ought to be able to commit mm-hmm. to that about a hundred thousand people in the united states uh, you know the number of canada's what probably the mm-hmm. tenth of that but it's a significant number of people who are going to have uh, at age 19 20 their first mm-hmm. episode and are going to end up probably either in an ER with Mm -hmm. intensive outpatient or in a hospital. Um, There ought to be a commitment to make sure that that person um, succeeds and doesn't, doesn't end up chronically disabled. That's an enormously expensive In the States we you know, we estimate that every person with schizophrenia has a lifetime economic burden of about $1.3 million. Um, We ought to, spend that money ensuring that that young person finishes school ends up in a family where they've got social support and um, gets the kind of wraparound care um, that will help them to preempt the next Mm -hmm. episode. Uh, That doesn't happen. Most people drop out of care, they stop their medicine, they end up uh, isolated and within a year or two have had a second episode. So. Uh, and that begins that whole downward mm-hmm. cascade. Uh, so I think we know enough today to do so much better. And I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. naive about this. I mean, these are really complicated problems. I get it that there are some people for whom even with the very, very best care, uh, they have uh, pretty dire outcomes. I've seen mm-hmm. that myself, so I understand that. But that doesn't change the reality that the vast majority of people get really lousy care mm-hmm. for their mental illness. And we know how to do better than that. And that's unacceptable. It is a civil mm-hmm. rights problem that we are not allowing these people on yeah. the bus. we got to do better.
0: I had uh, Dr. Alan Francis on, and I think he said um, the three top, Mental health treatment centers in the United States are prisons, and um, you know, that's just appalling. Um, talk a little bit about if you don't mind, um, because there's another I don't want to call it a controversy, but uh, when you're with NIMH um, with respect to the DSM, and um, just talk about what, what happened there and um, how you think about it today as a classification system or diagnostic whatever you want to call it, um, and and how we, we can work to improve on that.
1: Yeah well, I do think uh, diagnosis is important and to be totally honest about it, I didn't think that for much of the time mm. I was at NIMH, I just didn't I was I don't know, it was one of those areas that I just thought, um, i didn 't want to touch my predecessor, Steve mm-hmm. Hyman was more engaged in uh, both at the World Health Organization and in the committees looking at um d s m and other diagnostic systems and He was the one who sort of said to me at one point you know you're you ought to look at this because one of the reasons we don 't do better with our treatments is we don't really we have to clean up our diagnostics yeah. and he and I talked a lot about this and I came to understand that part of the reason we haven't done better was because the diagnostic criteria we have are, are so imperfect and so and they're so heterogeneous mm-hmm. so when you set up a treatment uh, a clinical trial for like a new antidepressant um and you take everybody with major depressive disorder Um, the analogy would be like, oh, you know, trying to create a new antibiotic and you bring in everybody with fever. You know, half the people have a viral illness. Half of them have a bacterial illness. You don't know who's who. um, And, you know, only half the people respond to your antibiotic. And so you say, oh, that's a crappy Mm -hmm. drug. Well, the problem was the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the medicine. And it was one of the things that I think was getting in the way of treatment development. But it was worse than that. Uh, We were seeing at NIMH that people were really interested in Mm -hmm. biomarkers in the early 2000s. Um, You know, this goes back much longer to like the days of the dexamethasone suppression test, which is a good example of this problem. But all the things that happened thereafter, whether it was genetics or imaging or stem cells, whatever you wanted to look at um, CSF urinary uh, plasma biomarkers. And they would do, they would take a mm-hmm. hundred people with uh, DSM four in this case, uh, major depressive disorder. And they would look for the biomarker and they would find it in 50% of them. And then they would say, well, this is garbage because it doesn't, it's only in 50% of the people instead of saying, wait a minute, We should probably throw out the diagnosis and look at this 50% to see whether they have a biological form of Mm -hmm. mood disorder that tracks with something important for treatment. It could be actionable. Um, And and yet there was such a belief in these DSM Mm -hmm. categories that people couldn't, they couldn't free themselves up to start to look, to do the kind of science we needed to. So, back in two thousand nine two thousand ten a group of us at the n i m h were getting interested in the idea of data first, you know rather than kind of dreaming up mm-hmm. classifications based on clinical symptoms and signs, having a bunch of old white guys get together and vote <laughs> on you know what's the category. Maybe we should just take thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people and do a, you know, a a data first uh, sort of what we would today called an unsupervised Mm -hmm. approach, collect the data and let the data tell us where the classifiers were, you know, and, and then the question became, well, what kind of data should we collect? Should it be just Mm -hmm. symptoms and signs or should we collect? cognitive data? Should we collect social data? Should we collect information about their genetics? And maybe if they have it, uh, brain imaging and all this other stuff. And so um, RDOC, this idea of a research domain criteria um, effort came out of that, where the concept was really fundamentally, Mark, it it was a kind of strategic plan for our research community in which we said to the scientists, for the next few years, don't make any mm-hmm. assumptions about right. the categories. Let's start over. let's hit reset, let's collect mm-hmm. lots of data uh, in a, along a continuum of severity. Uh, and let's do it in lots of people and just begin to understand then where you know where has nature cut you know cut nature mm-hmm. at the joints basically where Where are the classifiers that will emerge out of that? Now today we do this all the time. I mean, this is kind of the way that a lot of data science has done with un- unsupervised mm-hmm. machine learning. But at that time it was a little bit, um yeah. it was a little bit innovative and it was not, not really uh, in the comfort zone of most people. The, the pushback we got, which was absolutely deserved was uh, yeah, but how do you use this mm-hmm. in the clinic? Mm-hmm. Like this isn't, to, we have to, we have to have an ICD or a, a CPT code. We have to, right. we have to get reimbursed. I mean, we're not going to get reimbursed for some, uh, you know, negative valence uh, construct that you've got. And there, that's absolutely right. I mean, this was never meant to be a clinical diagnostic manual. It was literally meant to be a way to organize our right. research community um, and. This was never meant, literally was never meant for clinicians, but the hope was that if we could get the science to give us those insights, that maybe the next diagnostic manual, not DSM-5, but maybe the Mm -hmm. sixth one or something coming in the future, could be informed by that kind of science. Uh, And maybe it would turn out that, you know, when we start to do clinical trials on mood disorders, it wouldn't be these clinical symptom categories that DSM had cooked up, but maybe it would be some subgroup that, you know, you'd look at people that had high levels of anhedonia and maybe low levels of uh, some biomarker and something else. And that turns out to be, you know, a biologically more homogeneous Mm -hmm. group. Right. That actually should have its own diagnosis. I don't know that, but that's kind of where we're hoping this work will go. Um, You know, it, it was meant as a kind of long-term effort and it was meant, it was meant to be Mm -hmm. disruptive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it was, I think people felt disrupted and got a lot of pushback. The Mm -hmm. APA got very upset. Um, And, and I, you know, I think that history will decide whether that was, a useful exercise or not. I do think simply getting people to question our diagnostic categories was useful, but we're going to have to come up with something better than uh, a bunch of old white guys voting on whether these, that five out of nine of these symptoms constitutes major depressive disorder. Um, That I, I think we can do
0: part of the expression, but to me, that just seems that that seems insanity uh, as, as a way by which you, you classify um, something so important. Is that why um, you're, you're so entrepreneurial and that you've been involved? Like obviously you moved on and worked with Google and um, you've done a number of different um, tech startups and now you're looking at di- digital phenotyping. Is this your um, way of, of, of trying to solve the DSM problem in the private sector and more broadly, do you think now that mental health is so topical and there's so much um, capital being deployed into it, whether it's psychedelic or technology, that the private sector is more poised to solve some of these big problems um, than, than the governments or systems of, and institutions?
1: Uh, Well, the the two questions there, right? So uh, the the answer to the first one is no. I I didn't actually go into the tech sector to solve the diagnostic or DSM problem. I did feel that um, our work at Verily and then later at MindStrong would provide more objective Mm -hmm. data about mood, cognition, behavior, that we we know how to do that. Um, Companies are really good Mm -hmm. at collecting that kind of data but they weren't using it to serve patients with mental illness. They were using it to sell stuff. And so um, it felt to me like there was an opportunity here to collect the kind of data that would be better for understanding where people were at, doing it in a way that was objective, ecological, continuous, and passive because they're, you know, your phone knows right. so much about you. And um, and rather than just having all of that data go to Amazon mm-hmm. or to Google, why not use that data for, um, for you to help manage your own behavioral health? So yeah, there was a piece of that that I was curious about, but I hadn't actually thought about it so much for I see. diagnostics, but much more to empower people to be able like to do this for yeah, themselves. I see. Yeah, and and then um, it did become clear to me, though, that technology had the capacity to mm-hmm. democratize care in a way that uh, wasn't happening. And, and I do think that a lot of really complicated problems are going to get solved in the private sector and not in yes. uh, academic labs. Uh, and so uh, the move was partly to figure out ways to marshal the, all that energy and, and this huge private sector engine that was already delivering in oncology mm-hmm. and already delivering, just, well, I think it was in in diabetes care and to say, okay, can't we do this better? Uh, especially when you look at the problems we were trying to solve in mental health. I mentioned before 60% of people not in care. So this engagement problem, a workforce that doesn't mm-hmm. have the training. Mm-hmm training. I mean, engagement, training, measurement, accountability, man, that's what technology, Mm -hmm. they could solve those problems. That is where uh, data science comes to the fore and having a way to acquire lots of data and to then communicate lots of information, like for an online training program. All that is very scalable, very feasible. So, uh, And that is not going to get done in an academic lab because of Labs, you know, academic labs don't have designers. They don't have they don't have the kind of engineering you need uh, to they build don't have great the fu- products. They don't have
0: the cash either um, to scale or to...
1: But even if they did, right. I mean, it's yeah. not... They don't build stuff. Yeah. They write papers. They don't build products. And when they do build products, they're not products mm. that people love. And as somebody said to me at the very beginning of this uh private sector tour, uh, you know, the product can't be likable. It has to be lovable. It has mm. to be something somebody really Mm -hmm. wants to engage with every day and so um and through the course of now multiple companies that i've been either i've founded or advised or uh, invested in i've become convinced that there's Mm -hmm. a lot that can be done it's not the whole answer but it's you know it's part of where we can begin to close the gap on what we need um and so i am um I am a bit of a cheerleader for, uh, investment and it's now, you know, long, it's way surpassed what Mm -hmm. the NIMH puts in. last year, venture capital alone put in $2.4 billion into Mm -hmm. new mental health startups. And, and the, you know, that's well beyond the NIH budget. So, um, I'll tell you, Mark, it's, it's, On the one hand, I'm still excited about what can happen. Mm -hmm. I'm also frustrated that uh, when you look at the investment that's coming through the venture capital um, world, and it's explosive, Mm -hmm. right? It's just unbelievable how many companies have been launched and how many are now worth over a billion dollars. It's crazy, It blows my mind. But you look at what they're all doing, and they're not solving Mm -hmm. the problems that matter often. Yeah, it's true. They mm-hmm. are improving access. They're making sure that employees have, you know, can get mental health care when they want it, where they want it. Uh, telehealth is really an improvement over, depending on brick and mortar. Yeah, There's no question that um, some of the quantity mm-hmm. problem is getting fixed, but it's yeah. not fixing the quality problem. And it's not fixing the problems of people with serious mental illness, um, issues around Uh, Getting better care at home, crisis, uh, better crisis services, preempting crisis, making sure people don't end up incarcerated, uh, figuring out how to ensure that people recover. So building in the tools for facilitating recovery. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening. I don't see a lot of innovation for the safety net population. And ironically, it has happened in the United States in primary care. So uh, Medicaid is the funder of the safety net population. And if you look at heart disease and diabetes, we've got lots of companies that are in that space. But for the behavioral health population, which is actually the largest part of Medicaid, um, Mm. there's very little innovation still. So I'm now quite interested in taking this engine that's been so productive for building products for Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. direct-to-consumer and for employers and sometimes for private commercial payers, and now beginning to turn that engine towards the Mm. needs of the safety net and asking, how are we gonna use the private sector to actually begin to bend the curve on those public health goals? Uh, morbidity and mortality yeah yeah that's really interesting
0: because i you know the market for that 2.4 billion dollars is the worried well mild to moderate um depression anxiety what have you and probably more affluent population groups as well and you know to your point about when you you made that quote about reducing uh suicide rates recovery etc cetera, you know the groups that need to be targeted in a more innovative way are the ones that are being ignored um, through innovation. Do you, do you think it's more challenging though to deploy technology and innovation with those groups, or or are you working on something right now um, through a business to do that?
1: Well, it's uh, people say that a lot. I mean, I, every. <laughs> Talk I give the first question is about the digital divide and how this isn't fixing right. the equity problem.
0: I thought um, I, I thought I had an original question and, there, so thanks for that, Tom.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm it's, just, it's
0: I'm just gonna, it's yes, the right yes. question
1: though. I mean, it is it's a fair question, so I I, I think it's one to think about. Um, I I think that question is um, I think we need better data. I mean, I've seen some numbers about how where the digital divide plays out but it you know it is striking to me that that the homeless Mm -hmm. people that i've worked with uh Mm -hmm. usually have a cell phone right Uh, it may not be a smartphone but they have some uh they may not have anything else but the phone will be one thing that they'll hang on to now the problem is they may not be able to hang on to it for very long so they may end up with and they may not have a great data plan um again in the states uh we've got this massive infrastructure uh project that president biden is pushing uh to make sure there's broadband access uh in a more ubiquitous way um mm-hmm. that'll do a lot i mean he's not yeah. thinking about yeah. that as a mental health intervention but but i do think you know in the spirit that technology begins to democratize care um i think there's a you know there's a lot that can happen to um, connect individuals with serious mental illness who have a phone that um, if we have the right kinds of tools for social support, for instance, if they belong to a peer group that could be distributed, um, but allows them to uh, 24 seven connect to somebody who who they Mm -hmm. feel has got their back and is there for them um yeah i think there's you know mm. there's real promise in this so um i get it that it's yeah. it's a tougher problem in some ways than the worried well or than dealing with the employer market but um we got to do it we've got to figure out a way to tackle it and i'm i'm interested uh, i don't yeah. have a company right now that is actually solving for this MindStrong, one of the mm-hmm. companies I co-founded, is focused on the needs of people with serious mental illness. And and Valera Health, a company that I'm on the board of and invested in, is doing this. Mm. There are not a lot of others, I got to tell you. I mean, um, it's, it's not where most of that $2.4 billion has been deployed. But I'm hoping um, that we can begin to turn that around and that this next generation of investors and investments will begin to look at the public health need. I mean, what they don't seem to understand, I'm writing a paper about this now is that, um, cause people always say, well, you know, they, they're following yeah. the money, they're going where the money is. But, uh, we have in the States enormous uh, yes, investments yes. in the safety net right now. And so, uh, We have this group of 340 clinics in the states called the Certified Community Behavioral Health Centers. It's a spectacular new idea about entirely Mm
2: -hmm, this kind of whole mm -hmm.
1: person care for those with in the safety net with a serious mental illness. Um, That's a great opportunity. Uh, They've you know they're receiving very abundant funding now. Um, Great opportunity for innovation, and somebody needs to be able to. to really give those centers the the tools that we're now giving to commercial insurers and to, um, employers so that those patients can It's interesting. I had
0: on, um, city of Edmonton, chief of police, Dale McPhee who's a very data-driven, um, police officer. They just commissioned a, it was called the Edmonton social impact audit. And so they looked at, um, the social safety net and the amount of funding that's being deployed across not only government, but charity, NGOs, et cetera. And they came up with this number of, um, and this is in Edmonton, so 1.2 million population, um, $7.5 billion a year is being spent on what they'd call the social safety net ecosystem. And so, you know, part of the challenge, I think as well, um, and I think this spans across, and states uh in the mental health world is is siloed fragmented uncoordinated and that you know there's the collective impact model uh, where you know you want to engage community of course but i've always seen this dearth of courageous leadership or, or people that want to say you know what um we need to bring together a group of people and organizations that are showing key performance indicators um, that are better than other organizations out there. And we need to double down our investments in those organizations as, as opposed to being uh, nice to everyone. Um, I'm on a board here that um, distributes $30 million a year to charity and, and there, charities. And there's, there's so many groups that are, they're, they're trying to do well and they mean well, uh, yet um, it's just spraying money a million different places without any coordination, and so you know I, I see that as being a, a big problem, but also a big opportunity moving forward. Um, so I'm not sure if that's something that you would you would agree with, or or, or is the same in the United States as well.
1: Well, it certainly is in. Uh the world of mm. like nih mm. funding where we're you know the the goal is you know they're relatively yeah. small grants but we want to be inclusive and make sure that lots of people have an opportunity to pursue their best idea um it's you know in the world of uh private sector investment you're talking about startups and there are now a thousand
2: mm, over wow. a thousand
1: behavioral health startups um And you're right. There's no true coordination. Uh, and when it comes to the safety, it's, it is complicated because you've got, you've got housing, you've got healthcare, you've got disability support, you've got unemployment, you've got just so many different and criminal justice Mm -hmm. here is a big deal. So you've got all these different, what we Mm -hmm. call the color Mm -hmm. of money problem. So yeah, I could spend my dollars, um, on this piece of it, but that's gonna benefit you more than it's gonna benefit me. It's actually a cost for me, it's a savings for you. So why don't you pitch in? And and you're right, I mean, at, at mm-hmm. some level, it comes down to leadership. It comes down to somebody who oversees all of that saying, look, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. We're all on the same bus. We've gotta to get to this place. And this is what it's gonna to take to get there. Um, and that doesn't happen very yeah. often. Yeah, it's been one of the um, real challenges.
0: So, I, I want I want to talk about the uh, about progress, the future, and, and and the path forward, and and maybe we can touch on on, on psychedelics um, for a little bit and just get your your thoughts on it. You know, um, Robert Card Harris and David Nutt, is, I think I think they've done a a good job of articulating, you know, and I don't know if you agree with this, but you know, if you think about um, the brain as as a highway with or a circuit, and and that um, the use of psychedelics um, allows for psychotherapy to, you know, re- rewire your brain. And I, I've I've read some quotes um, from you that don't exactly maybe like the word circuit, but maybe talk talk about so I don't continue to sound like a moron, Um, how you think about psychedelics um, as a, as a treatment modality over the next five to 10 years and and what that's actually doing um, in your brain from a neuroscience perspective to allow for the psychotherapy to be more effective.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't think we know the answer to those questions. I mean, the psychedelics are kind of mm-hmm. the hot topic of the moment. Understandably so. We've mm-hmm. got a couple of recent papers that are that are really fascinating mm-hmm. uh, on both MDMA and psilocybin. But it's important to remember that you know, we there's a lot of
2: mm-hmm. a
1: lot we don't know about what they do, who they're good for, what they're good for. Um we have to learn more about mm-hmm. safety as well as efficacy. Um we've these are still Schedule One compounds. Um the last well it wasn't the last, but a you know, a previous Schedule One compound that got descheduled mm. was fentanyl. So we got, you know, the, wow. there's we we need to we need we have some work to do here before we can demonstrate that these are Um, medicines for a very well-defined set of problems. Um, It may be that at the end of the day, these are seen as something that's not really part of a medical model, but more of a kind of a religious, spiritual consciousness expanding model. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know where this will end up. I what I worry about is so I'm old mm-hmm. enough to remember the last go around here. How old were you? I was uh, I was in that movie. T-
0: Timothy Leary how uh, I'll be yeah, when Timothy Leary was gone.
1: Yeah, so I was in college when I well put it this way, uh the drugs right, were legal right. when I when I was uh in in college. So um it's it really uh is mm-hmm it's a little worrisome to me to see the rush to make these uh, as widely accessible as possible without some safeguards put in place. Uh, I, I do remember some adverse events from uh, other students who were experimenting Mm -hmm. in that case, mostly with LSD to some extent with methamphetamine Um, you know, people who thought they could fly and and jumped Mm. off the the dormitory, uh, 16th floor, that kind of thing. Um, so, um, these, you know, as I would say for any powerful medicine that can do good, there's also the risk of doing harm and we need to understand a little bit more about that. So my, you know, my current, uh, advice is, um, Let's mm-hmm. let the science lead this uh, let's keep the keep going on the clinical trials. let's make sure we really understand uh, when and where mm-hmm. and who this is best for. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll if we do that we'll come out with um, a you know a mm-hmm. new asset that the field needs, but again, Mark, to go back to what Mm-hmm. I've been thinking most about in the last two or three years of what I wrote the book about is that we've got so many assets now that we don't use. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. It'd be great to have another yeah. one. <laughs> you know, it's always great to have another car in the driveway, but um, let's take the cars we have mm-hmm. now and make sure we're going someplace with them um, and, and doing that where we really need it. Uh, Cause that's what, yeah, drives me now, is, is our failure to act on what we know currently, um, not the need right. to develop yes. yeah, yeah, y- yeah, yet another yeah, thing yes. well, that's like going to that. sit yeah. in the driveway.
0: So I guess let, let's talk about your, your book, Recovery, a little bit and about the car analogy and an, and an asset. So if you say we have a, a number of assets, is your suggestion that we're not they need to be recalibrated in a way that improves those outcomes for individuals with mental illness, or, or what is your, um, what do you wanna do with the assets that we currently have that we're not doing now?
1: Well, I hope this will happen in California. We have a new commitment from the governor uh, and it, the legislature will vote on this final budget probably tomorrow. Here we are <laughs> in the middle of June uh, of 2021. So by um, July of 2021, we'll have f- uh, over $4 billion committed to rebuilding the mental for health young system.
0: And when system. You, for young people. What's young people, 12 to 25 yeah. or what's the
1: – Are zero to 25. Uh, zero to 25. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so – so that, and if you look at that plan, which has about 10 pieces in it, almost everything is what I've been writing about and and really uh, encouraging. And that is mm-hmm. go deep, go early, right? So make sure that people have, um, that families have supports. Nurse Family Partnership developed in the 1980s. Um, has been shown to reduce criminal justice involvement by over 50% in mm-hmm. at-risk mm-hmm. families. Mm-hmm. Like, we should be doing this. This is right. not a research project anymore. This should be the way that families get support. Even something mm-hmm. like the friendship bench, so bringing in grannies who sit with um, the pregnant moms who are struggling or new moms who are struggling. Um, they, this is done in Zimbabwe, it's done mm-hmm. throughout Southern Africa right now, hugely influential. Uh, very, it's not expensive, uh, but training people up to provide the kind of peer support or mental health worker uh, support so that they have some basic skills and can serve in that way. Um, there, you know, it's an awful lot we can do in schools uh, and uh, to... If you take the Australian project called Future Proofing, that's being done in New South Wales, it's a great example of how you're looking at sort of population intervention to make sure that kids are given the skills they need to um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to be able to manage mm-hmm. emotional storms, uh, and then in the world of care itself. So, you know, moving into what happens when real problems develop and you need to do that mm-hmm. making sure you have a workforce that actually has the skills to be able to help the people who turn to them for that making sure that you mm-hmm. uh, have coordinated care and making sure that you're measuring um i often say that uh, in this field because we don't measure our um, our confidence has exceeded mm-hmm. and surpassed our competence mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what happens when you don't get feedback. So ensuring that we that we have measurement-based care, that everything is driven by outcomes and by data, and that you're paying for outcomes instead of paying right. for just time spent. There's just a whole range of things. The good news mm-hmm. is this is already beginning to happen. It wasn't actually, I mean, it's so quick. When I started the book in 2017, uh, there was very little of this but the certified community behavioral health centers, the coordinated specialty care clinics for first episode psychosis, um, the attempt to create uh, tens of thousands of mental health workers uh, in states like Washington, New York, and California mm-hmm, who are peer certified and and provide care uh, like the Friendship Bench. All that's really beginning to happen in some really great ways uh, now. So I'm quite hopeful. But I think, Mm -hmm. more than psychedelics. I think that's really where I want to see us focus. I want to see us make a commitment to uh, people with mental illness that says, Mm -hmm. we care about you. And uh, to use President Kennedy's expression from 1963 that, um, as he said, you need be no longer Mm -hmm. alien Mm -hmm. to our affections. Uh, Because you Mm -hmm. are us, Mm -hmm. all of us, every family um, is struggling, usually Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. secret, usually alone, Mm -hmm. usually without any good guidance and without access to good information. But every family has got a story. Um, And we have to open this up. We have to allow people to get the care that works, allow them to get the kind of support they deserve. And we have to make a commitment as a society that, hey, this is important. Uh and we're going to make sure that people are no longer alien to our affections, that they are getting the care that they should get to be able to recover.
0: Well, no, that was that was beautifully said. And so maybe maybe I'll I'll end it on that note. Um I I really enjoyed talking to you, uh, Tom and uh really, really Enjoy following your work uh, as a world leader in this area. And um, if there's anything I can do from my post here in Edmonton to help further um, better patient outcomes, I'm here anytime. So thank you.
1: Okay. Thanks, Mark, for having me. And good luck with the podcast. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.